The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. Hello. Hi. Hello. Here we are. Noggins and neurons. A bunch of noggins here. Putting our neurons together to talk to all of your noggins and neurons. We're here with Manakshi and Tori and Tracy from Duville University. Recording another student segment. And today we're going to talk about factors affecting stroke recovery. And before we even get into anything, I'm going to invite our guests to introduce themselves. Maybe after Doro says, hey. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) So who wants to go first? Uh, I guess Manakshi can. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> All right. Hi there. My name is Manakshi Kurvier, and I was born and raised in Brampton, Ontario, Canada. And I am currently an occupational therapy student attending Duville University located in Buffalo, New York. I have previously graduated with a Bachelor's of Science degree in biology and will soon be graduating with my Master's of Occupational Therapy in May of 2023. Here are a few things about me. 
I completed my level two field works in an outpatient pediatric clinic and in a skilled nursing facility. And my critically appraised topic for my senior research project is what is the effectiveness of music therapy in improving participation in activities of daily living for adults who have dementia. After graduation, I plan on moving to the US and working with adults in subacute rehab. Nice. Yeah, that's a lot right there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Manakshi, did you do your field works locally or did you travel? Um, I did one locally. So my first one was in Milton, Ontario, and the second one was in North Tonawanda, New York. Okay. Is Milton near Brampton or? It's about 20 minutes away. Okay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, Tori. So my name is Victoria Peruker or Tori. I'm a Duville student and I actually went to Duville for my undergrad in exercise sports science and then came back for my master's in occupational therapy. So that was awesome. My field work experience was a little um, out of the norm. I did six weeks at a um, at a hospital in the acute setting. Then I did six weeks at a skilled nursing facility in the subacute. And then I did 12 weeks at an outpatient clinic that focused on neuro rehab. And all three were in the local Buffalo area. So um, I got to stay close to home. Nice. As for people who don't know, occupational therapy students have to complete two 12-week fieldwork rotations. Somehow they have to get 24 weeks of fieldwork in. Do you have any postgraduate plans or anything else that you'd like for us to know about you? Well, I am keeping my options open. I am really considering and really pushing for travel therapy because then I can continue to learn and try out different settings and and it's kind of like field work, right? You kind of do a new rotation um, every three months. So I just, I like to learn and I think that will give me the best opportunity. Sounds exciting. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of therapy professionals enjoy learning. Yeah, definitely um, my hobby. <laughs> and I think it's really important within our field to continuously learn and educate on the newest, latest, and greatest. Yeah, and share what we've learned mm -hmm. with others. Mm -hmm. Well, as someone who is involved in your education, that makes my heart sing. This is Tracy. Thank you so much for saying that. And I'll be honest, I learned something about the two of you and I've had you in classes before. So that was very exciting. My experience across the adult care continuum, literally across every setting across the adult care continuum, I have had my own private practice. My love is home care. I'll be very honest with you. That's where the majority of my experience, even to this day, since I, um, I left home care in 2013, even to this day, it is still by years where I've had my most experiences in home care. So I think it's the best place to be an occupational therapist and to ensure that people are able to maintain, remain, and thrive in their homes 
So I was ready, Deb, to be very honest with you, to tell you my new fun fact. I know that you like to let everyone know that I've recently achieved a Doctor of Health Science from the University of Indianapolis. If I don't mention it, she'll mention it. So there we are, <laughs> which is very exciting. And my dissertation was on role emerging practice and the perceptions of the non-OT supervisor. So when um, Minakshi and Tori were speaking about their level two field works, very exciting opportunity for we as occupational therapists is to spread our wings and work in different environments that currently do not have occupational therapists. Because as we know on this call, our scope of practice is deep and wide, and we have many, many, many skills to offer everyone. And I'm the first person to say everyone across the lifespan. So thank you for this opportunity. And my fun fact outside of the graduating part is I like to ferment things. And that Ooh, usually yes. brings up some conversations. Currently, yeah. it's just sourdough, but I'm waiting for a new SCOBY to show up in my life for kombucha. Awesome. I, I'm putting it out there. I had a whole kombucha, what I like to call like a condominium. It was this big five gallon thing. And the poor deer was compromised. So I had <laughs> to say goodbye. And it was very sad. My husband says we should name it. It lives in the dark. It's in the cupboard. Like it needs a name, like a pet. <laughs> so I have a new one coming. I have a student bringing me one, hopefully tomorrow. I'm very excited. So thank you for this opportunity to work and to learn from all four of you. Yeah, kombucha fun. Okay, so getting into our topic for today, factors affecting stroke recovery. Some of the points that Tori Amanakshi have suggested we cover include all the factors that influence recovery patterns and stroke outcomes to help explain why it, it is so complex and difficult to answer that question. And we're going to list all the factors that affect stroke recovery and then hone in on some of those topics. We want to talk about the continuum of care and how people sometimes get lost after they're discharged from acute care, and that can affect their stroke recovery. We want to talk about cognitive treatment and discuss the connection to caregivers and how the survivor's deficits may affect the caregivers. And we like to call caregivers care partners on this podcast, as we learned from Tracy and her, her gang last year. And then we want to talk about how we can discuss those care partners along the stroke survivor's recovery journey as well. So where should we start? Should we just get into the nitty gritty and talk about the factors? Yeah. <laughs> so along our research, we found lots of data, <laughs> that is for sure. Some of it is really like goes nicely with one another. And then sometimes it just really um, negates some of the other research. So overall, the key factors that we found in our research that affect or that could affect um, recovery were age, lesion volume, white matter lesion load, um, some time since uh, the stroke, and then baseline impairment, and then some lesion geometry, and even just how like cognition was impacted as well. So from there... Can I jump in for a sec? So 
in one of the articles, there was three types of kind of umbrella factors. And that kind of helps to sort it out, in my mind at least. Um, there's the sociodemographic factors, there are clinical factors, and then there are also genetic factors. So I think it's important to note that there are factors that you can control and factors that you can't control. So I think maybe we can probably discuss them in different categories and run through them. Does that sound like a good idea? Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. So I guess I will start with sociodemographic factors. And then um, Tori can maybe speak to clinical factors. And then lastly, we'll talk about genetic factors. So in terms of sociodemographic factors, we have age, gender, race, socioeconomic status, and then other small ones such as caregiver support, marital status, disease awareness, mistrust within the healthcare industry, the actual system itself, and also, um, actually that's it. I was just over reading in that one part. So age, you know, the older, older age is associated to poor outcomes and I read that nearly half of older stroke survivors will experience mild to severe disability. However, though, the influence of age on post-stroke recovery should be distinguished from age-associated confounding factors, um, and that is through other comorbidities and social variables as well. And to add a note, as in regards to the age, this can be... The long-term effect or the short-term effect could be the impact because for the short-term, age could be like an impact on the recovery, um, seeing that, as Manakshi stated, that, you know, with our older patients that have, or for our older stroke survivors, their recovery might be slower compared to the younger stroke survivors. But once we get down the road in the long term, that kind of goes away because they're at the same um, standing. So you really have to look at that long term versus short term when you look at the age. Um, the next one within sociodemographic factors is gender. And females appear less likely to achieve complete functional independence based on research generally and are more likely to experience post-stroke disabilities compared to males. Women are more likely to suffer from depression symptoms and fatigue, which are then negative factors on recovery. And actually, Tori found a really interesting article that actually just compared gender differences. Um, and there was some interesting findings in there as well. Do we have that article? Which we one is sure that? We sure do. That's the male versus female titled one that I have in there. Yes. So it's a, uh, is sex a prognostic factor in stroke rehab? And with that article, some big things in regards to gender were um, men have better functional recovery, which included stairs and just basic ADLs because 
they have a high response and higher effectiveness on mobility in comparative to the women in this study. But women did have partial independence in ADLs in ambulation with a cane. So they still had progress. It was just a little bit different in comparison. I don't really understand what that means about the men, though. The men having the better um, or, well, a quicker recovery process. So it was just kind of some of the results that were found. In this study, it was um, both, I think, their first, um, well, not both, but it was everyone's first stroke. So there was no past stroke no uh, damage to the brain or anything else that could be impacting their recovery. And this one really looked at the length of stay as well. Overall, they had similar neurological recovery. It was just the functional recovery was better in men. That's so interesting. I wonder why. That's what I'm wondering too. I'm wondering if it has to do with muscle mass. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Muscle mass, hormones, or something like that has to be if it's gender specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so I was thinking maybe possibly care partner involvement and effects of the whole team. Mm-hmm. And like what kind of support services and support did those did the individuals have that may have also been a factor in things such as repetition of exercise? Things right. Such as- that's a good point too. Yeah. I believe the study went on to explain some of the findings. And the researchers said that a major reason could be the interaction between sex-related differences and muscular strength. So that is definitely one of the factors. Um, And that greater, it is greater in men at all ages. So this difference between the sexes may increase in the elderly because of the observed decline in muscle strength within aging. And this is then related to a reduction in physical activity, normally different between the sexes. Yeah. It also, speaking on Tracy's point, with women, it showed that they had greater insecurity and being more open in requesting for help. So it showed that men had more independence and were more confident and disguise their need for help in comparison to the women. And in my field work experience working with in the outpatient neuro rehab clinic, I could speak on that to be a lot of my female patients, not all, some of them, did kind of rely on their support system, whether it was their husband or their uh, son to, you know, kind of help them along which might have impacted their recovery because they're like, yeah, okay, you can help me with this. I don't need to push myself to try to be independent or try to do it on my own like I used to. That's a statement on societal norms right there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I'm thinking about too. And uh, pre-injury, pre-infarct dynamics. Yeah. So just speaking on my fieldwork experience, I did have a patient who was very independent in her life pre-stroke, you know, uh, very educated doctor and did everything on her own. 
And so post-stroke and in her recovery process, she had a difficult time, whether it was her mood. It was never diagnosed, but she probably had post-stroke depression. And it definitely affected her um, sessions when we worked with her and whatnot. But looking at her family dynamic between her and her husband when he would come in, she was really reliant on him. And that, speaking to her husband, it was not the case prior to. So there is definitely um, an adjustment period that she's still going through, sadly. But it was an adjustment for him as well. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, this is what I loved about my anthropology degree, was looking at the sick role. You know, when we, how do we view that? How do we view that culturally? How do we view that within our own families? And it's a very, I think it's a very unconscious thing that mm -hmm. we, we seem to adopt within ourselves and in our family systems. I think culture also plays a huge role on that in terms of whether it's on your own onus to take care of yourself or whether you're going to have a support system. Yeah, for sure. Because I find that in some communities, their support system is so much greater than other cultures or communities. And other people tend to take all of that on themselves and they don't want to put that burden on their family or on their social circle of support. A lot of moho talk right now. I just, I see the, the diagram in my head through this conversation and how it all, it's like this giant system and the way that it, it, what we think and what we do and how others think and what they do affects each moment and a person's recovery process. Moving back to the sociodemographic factors, we discussed age and gender. And the next one is race. So research has found that Blacks have significant higher stroke incidence, less access to acute therapy, higher mortality rates, greater initial stroke severity, and higher stroke reoccurrence. And uh, this is a huge topic, I think, considering this is, is going to make up a lot of the population of people we work with. And we actually found another article that specifically looks at the care and dealing with this population of people because of the prevalence within this community of African Americans. Um, so there is a presence of racial variation in post-stroke recovery outcomes, and that is that Blacks, along with other minorities, have been shown to have poorer stroke outcomes compared to whites. And this was spoken about in several types of research, and it's very well known that the health outcomes will differ according to your race which is unfortunate, but there are steps that we are taking and that we can continue to take to kind of close this disparity. With African Americans, a quick note, as I will discuss it a little bit later, but they 
will decline antidepressants a little bit more in comparison to other populations or um yeah so that opens them up to more um mood changes and it might impact their motor or cognitive recovery as well so i think that is really important to add um when talking about race as well I think that's important for we as providers to keep in mind as well, because there are many non-pharmacological ways to address the concerns that Tori and Menakshi spoke to. So I think that that's an opportunity for providers from a biopsychosocial perspective when working with individuals who have experienced a stroke. I agree. And since we do try to uh, give examples on this podcast, do you have a couple in mind, Tracy? or Doro, or anybody? In my research, I don't have an article based on it at the moment, but I looked at it and I saw an article that suggested CBT for Mm -hmm. stroke patients. And currently my um, CAT project is on CBT, but in use for postpartum patients. So to like do all my research on that, to then think about translating it to stroke patients, I think it would be very valued um, in treatment sessions. So cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, guided motor imagery is another possible. I'm thinking about uh, breathing. Like there are certain types, any breath work is beneficial to people. There are some types that I'm not sure about for people who've experienced a stroke, like the ones where you hold your breath because I I can see that increasing intracranial pressures, but there are some, the one that's more like a heart rate variability type of breathing where you breathe in and out consistently for the same amount of seconds, however many seconds that is, that it really works on the autonomic nervous system and it helps increase blood flow to all of the organs, which can help then deliver the proper nutrients to the brain as part of that improvement for helping to manage depression or, or treat it naturally. Mm. Yeah, I've seen in, in the clinic, I've seen the best results with medication. And I'm a supporter of that, even though, you know, I do have a lot of clients that say, I don't want to take the medication and I can 100% understand it. But the benefits that I've seen with it, um, taking a Zoloft or any SSRI after a stroke, there's a big difference overall in mood and motor recovery. I've seen a difference. Definitely, because it enables the rehab to occur. Absolutely. And completely support that statement, Doral. Yeah. And I tell clients, this this does not mean something's wrong with you. You're depressed. You have a Mm -hmm. mental illness. It's just a tool to support you temporarily. And I usually, um, instead of talking about mental health and depression, I talk about brain chemistry and say, you know, it's the brain chemistry that got messed up. So let's work on it. And that's a way where they're sometimes more receptive to take in an SSRI. Mm-hmm. And then you can introduce some of the other non-pharmacological. Absolutely. Yep. When then- they're more ready and open to that way. And then obviously with Dr. Oversight, titration off of the SSR. Yep. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 
powerful because then they have the opportunity to see some successes, experience some, some successes along their recovery journey, which can play into that feedback loop of a little encouragement there. Oh, yeah. I mean, we know how important that feeling of satisfaction is for plasticity. So if you're depressed and you can't elicit that emotion um, just because it's chemically impossible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why our role is providing feedback to assist and ensure that, that our clients see that gain that they're making. Because sometimes we see those very small gains and possibly um, family members or care partners and um, their support circle may not see those small gains because they're still, quote unquote, not able to do X, Y, or Z. Right. But we as clinicians see the gains that are building to the X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And I love that about these conversations in the podcast to help plant that seed for people to understand that a gain is a gain. And if one gain happens, another gain can happen. Mm -hmm. And multiple mm -hmm. mini gains make up a larger gain. To refer to one of your old podcasts, someone said practice makes progress. Oh, that was Pete. And no, I think that, that and that just like encompasses it all. Like you just need those little gains and then the progress will show and you just got to practice it, honestly. So I think that's just always important to keep in mind and it's a good motivator too so absolutely okay that was a good digression um actually there's one point that i want to bring up so you were saying that um you know dora was explaining how we are educating our patients or clients and and just putting it out there, you know, they can do what they want with the information, but I think it's definitely important to just stress the reasons why somebody may want to take medication for depression in terms of being a facilitator for recovery. And something that was interesting that I found when I was reading about um, uh, barriers and facilitators for American folks was that they they rely so heavily on their social support circle and um, also there within the circle there is or can be misinformation about certain things you know for example like a son or daughter reading into medication side effects and then saying, oh my gosh, there's all these side effects. I don't know if you should be taking it. And then there are negative outcomes from this. If somebody does decide not to take their medications or disregarding them. And I think that as a clinician, it's our, it's our duty to explain, you know, the positives and the negatives of things and let people decide. But it's also important to get credible information when you're making these decisions because it's easy to read something on Google and go down a rabbit hole of, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Or what is the right course of action? Or, you know, there's, we've all been there where you read up on things and you freak out 
and then you just decide that you don't want to do this or don't want to do that. And that is detrimental, I think, in your recovery, especially if you're disregarding any type of medications, um, especially with ones that help with post-stroke depression. I think with that, it is important to know, yes, they can do their own research, but it's important for us, whether it's us as OT clinicians or the doctor that discharged them to make sure when they're being discharged that they have all the information Mm -hmm. that they need. Because in that article that you're talking about, it does say that that is heavily missed family care, new family, um, what did you call care partners are, they might not have been care partners prior. So now they're in this new role and they don't have the education of, okay, how do I transfer my loved one from here to there? Or like, what is this medication side effect? Or, you know, a lot of different like resources might not be given right then and there. So when they come to us, maybe it's an outpatient or subacute, that is on us to at least give them those resources to better them, whether it's just the patient or the care partners in that recovery process, because it's a big part. I have another statement to make. Two points I want to bring up here. So one is taking that information to the next level and maybe going through it with the family and the survivor and giving them that space to process the information, ask questions. And I know a lot of times the clients and the family members feel more comfortable asking questions to the therapist rather than the doctor, because it's just, I think it's just a thing where sometimes people are afraid to question the physician but they will feel comfortable with us where we kind of act like that liaison. And then we can go back to that physician or the nurse and ask them to re-explain something or help the person get the answers that they need to make that informed decision. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up is something that came up in my anthropology education is respecting the client's choice when it doesn't match the medical system choice or the provider choice. It it can be very difficult for us, especially in the Western medicine world. We think we have all the answers and we think we know what's best. And we need to be very careful to not impose our beliefs on others and do our best to still provide the, the services that we would normally provide with their choices that they make. Mm-hmm. Patient autonomy is huge. So I think a good point to kind of go into is talking about those clinical factors. So stroke subtype can be a major factor in regards to the recovery process, whether it's a hemorrhagic, hemor- I hate that word. I can't you got say it. it. You got it. Hemorrhagic. <laughs> or an ischemic stroke, they can definitely have their challenges uh, amongst the two. 
but hemorrhagic stroke survivors seem to have more functional impairment at first glance, but they have a faster recovery than those who had an ischemic stroke or comparable severity. So I think that's really uh, good to note. And in some of my research, some discussion on where the lesion was located or the lesion size will definitely impact the recovery process. Um, In regards to lesion size, that was seen to impact um, cognition and which then could impact mood and be like a, you know, um, domino effect from there. So there's many things to consider in regards to stroke recovery, for sure. Also, the initial injury in regards to the lesion size and where it is located, the Dramatic recovery generally occurs in the first 30 days, which is very important. So that acute setting is where you're going to see a lot of those changes happen and then going into the subacute as well. Now, where I did my rotation for field work was at an outpatient clinic, and these patients were either three months to like a year or two into their recovery process. And I saw clients and patients at the one year mark still making some gains, which was amazing. So again, practice makes progress. And the fact that you stated it will occur in the brain first is really uh, important to make those changes happen externally, then transferring that change in the brain to then uh, happening either in our hands or, you know, in our ambulation. So I think that's really important. Can I add something to the initial injury point? I think we also need to keep in mind that for the initial injury, it should start as early as when the stroke's onset uh, when the stroke happens when when the symptoms first occur like a re- just a recognition of it's a stroke and then diagnosing it correctly and the and treating it correctly is huge so i'm i, w- I want to say 90 percent of my clients were misdiagnosed upon arrival in the er because they didn't fit the typical mold of oh you're an old person you have a stroke you know it's like and 17, 18 year old that cannot stand or walk or talk. So we run for drug panels before we even consider that it could be a stroke and lose a lot of valuable time where you could administer the TPA or something um, or get you know better imaging done. Um, so I think that's a really big one for us healthcare, us healthcare providers to keep advocating within the healthcare community to recognize stroke quicker. Yes, I agree. Also, I'd like to add, if the patient went to a hospital that doesn't have a neurologic team possibly on staff and then they have to be transferred to another hospital, that also adds time and 
between, you know, the start of their recovery or, you know, treatment in regards to their stroke. So that happened to me on my field work. Sadly, the location that I was at, they didn't have any neurologic team. So they had to move them somewhere else, which was valuable minutes. And I'm like, this can't be okay in my head. You know, we should find money somewhere and get this team at every hospital I feel like would be valuable. I'm so glad that both of you were, or all of us have been saying about time. And I also want to emphasize that time after somebody's had the stroke, they may have another stroke as well. So depending on from a provider perspective, what level you're working with the individual, you still have to be watching for all of those changes. Just because someone had one while they had a stroke, well, they're different than three hours ago. But again, that time is still very, very, very valuable. And when we're talking about EPA for our care partners that are listening, that's any of the um, clot-busting medicines that are administered within the 24-hour time frame and much closer, not 24-hour, four to, four to six. They say, say four to yeah, six. here we have four a three, to six. Yeah. Three hour. Locally, I think the hospitals that I've seen that they do the three hour window now. Three hour window. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. Cause that's definitely not the 24, just so everyone knows comes from when someone has a clot busting medication, we can mobilize them um, prior to that. That is also changing, but that is one of those rules that you want to be making sure checking with nursing before you're mobilizing someone after a clot busting drug is administered. Yeah. Pete and I did an episode on TPA and that early intervention following stroke. And it's been a while. But I do think that the parameters are changing there. Even the age demographic, they're saying, why should we consider age? We should look at the overall health of the person in terms of giving that type of medication. And that is for ischemic strokes. So some, they, they do need to make sure that somebody is not having a hemorrhagic stroke because that could make the problem worse. Mm -hmm. It can also cause hemorrhagic strokes that you have to watch out for. So that's the tricky part. So it might dissolve the clot, but then it causes bleed somewhere else. So it's a, it's a risk. I think positive outcomes are greater than the negatives, but it's a risk. Yeah. In my clinical experience, that is the situation as well. Sometimes I'm just fascinated by seeing someone up in the ICU who had TPA mm -hmm. and with minimal and knowing where the location was from the MRI. It was just fascinating to see. But then that's another conversation about minor impairments. Um, just because someone is mobile after a stroke doesn't necessarily mean that they are capable and able to do any sort of higher cognitive activities mm -hmm. from an IADL perspective as well. And I'm sure that uh, Doro, especially with her background, can speak to um, how post-stroke return to work and participation in other activities outside of ADL, basic ADL. I'm sure you're seeing wonderful gains in your clinic that time well beyond what we're initially speaking to, the time that people are receiving services. I lovingly re refer to, like, I call it the post, post, post acute world. <laughs> I love it. So the the time that, like, we're not in our traditional reimbursable, yeah. even though it is reimbursable, yeah. what everyone thinks about with inpatient rehab 
to subacute care, to an outpatient set, or to home care, and then to an outpatient. Correct. Yeah. It's never too late to start rehab. Yes. Yeah. You're here. I agree. And then let's let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum where with it being early to start rehab. And while we need to be careful with intensity, we can address the possibility for of learned non-use, which can start immediately following mm -hmm. a stroke. And we as providers need to be aware of that. And there are simple things that can be done in a hospital room to help combat that immediately so that it doesn't become a, a giant neural pathway that needs to be changed. Yeah, you definitely have to be careful in the very beginning not to overload them with too much. That is for sure, because it could do more harm than good, but you definitely want to start at least sooner <laughs> rather than later, for sure. Yeah, and that's a whole conversation. You know, in the hospital, they're putting lines in affected limbs because maybe that's the limb where, where they have a good vein or a good entry into the body. And it's just, there's a lot to think about in that acute phase. And again, this is a discussion on societal norms. People in the regions that I work in, that independent factor is huge. So if someone can learn to eat with their non-dominant side, they're going to, and then they're missing out on those opportunities. And that comes down to education to the client and to the care partners, because oftentimes people do for their loved one when they should be encouraging and establishing an environment for that loved one to do for themselves to gain that use of the affected side. Yeah, I can speak on that from field work. I've had multiple discussions with family members like, no, this is for their best care. She knows what she needs to do to do this task. How about we take a step back? I'm right here. She is in a safe environment. It will be all right. It will benefit her more than harm. Let's try this out. Talking to family and having that step back and letting them participate in the task like on their own and be independent is very important for them but you keep helping. I, lo I love it. Thank you. I see the love, but also there's a moment to step back and, you know, let them try it out on their own so that they can be more independent. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really, really hard, you know, uh, concept to comprehend, especially if a loved one experiences a traumatic injury, you want to be there and help and show your love and support by helping. So it's, it might almost feel like a, oxymoron or paradox you know it's just I need to how you know I need to step away and not help my loved one in order to help them <laughs> yeah exactly. that's a hard concept to grasp <laughs> but you know it is and some of the research that we've been given from the Duval students has shown that as care partners are educated and begin to understand the importance of that more they become better able to catch themselves and step away and provide support in a different way, in a more helpful way. All of this talk reminds me of a barrier and a facilitator that I read about for African-Americans. 
and I guess anyone who's really religious or or has a strong faith in their beliefs. Um, and that is, so as practitioners working with stroke survivors, we know the importance of how time sensitive in our recovery is and building that neuroplasticity working with our patients. And we also have an understanding of the importance of cultural beliefs, which is inclusive of religion and faith. So I feel as though occupational therapists have a, they're well positioned to stress the importance of seeking care as soon as possible, while considering that somebody has strong faith or beliefs. And I think it's important that, you know, a lot of people may say, you know what, God will fix it, or or I'm going to wait and see if I hear or see if I have some sort of miracle recovery or a recovery on my own first. And then if I don't, I'll seek help. And I think it's important that faith could be a barrier, but it can also be a facilitator. And so as a clinician, it's important for us to have these conversations with our clients, especially from the get-go and enlighten them on the educational and medical model of stroke recovery while also being sensitive to their own beliefs. And that probably plays a huge factor in the outcome of somebody receiving some sort of service or rehabilitative therapy compared to waiting and losing that window of time that's so important for them to receive those services. Yeah, and I think it is important as clinicians, yes, to have that conversation, but also to do the research to back up and like, okay, they need this format to help better them that supports their culture or their faith, and that will also help benefit their recovery as well. So to do that research on your own with discussing it with the client is very important. It's interesting because I think that it's people's perceptions of their higher power and the way that we all have a perception of that, that we're bringing to the table. And, you know, this, so I worked for a Catholic health system for many years. So it had a a very faith-based approach to care. And I worked with a lot of people who were of the Catholic faith. And you know how when you're doing your career and sometimes you get tired and you start to feel frustrated and you, and you, you, if you're the type of person that wants to help, which most healthcare providers are helpers, and you start to feel within yourself that you're not being helpful. I was having a time where I felt that way. And I will never forget one of the PTs that I worked with. She said, Deborah, your work is your prayer. So that kind of changed my perspective. And then I think about that in terms of others. If we think about if our work is of being, being of service to another, and we're a person who needs to receive a service, if we could maybe think about how is this person providing their love to us and, you know, through their, through their skills that they have. And this is the way that, that 
a higher power is using a person because I know many faith-based people have a perspective of wanting this higher power to use them in a way that's meaningful and helpful to others. And I think sometimes we as service recipients have a hard time receiving that service or, um, I don't know, just even understanding, like maybe we can think about it a little bit differently that through our faith, we can trust that we are being cared for through the people who are caring for us. I like the way you put that because I don't practice as much as is my faith and whatnot as much as I used to, but to put it that way and to like rely, like relate it to work because truly like it, you are trying to do the best for them and to relate it back to work is your prayer. I think that's amazing because I think I might use that. No, it really, it changed things for me. And I don't practice a faith the same way that other people that I worked with did, but that's okay because I still can allow, like I have my hands, my body, my mind, my knowledge that I can share with another if they're willing to receive it. And I can try to be helpful to them in a way that, that is helpful to them. That's That's a great way to even have that conversation with people who are more um, practicing, who are more stronger in their faith. And just explaining that you want to help them and that, you know, it's important to, at the end of the day, do the best you can and that we are there to help them as well in their journey. And so if that relates to any sort of higher power that may resonate in that patient or client and help them see where you're coming from as a clinician. It's kind of coming back around to that accepting people where they're at. And, you know, it's not really, it's not that important for others to know what we believe and how it's not that important because our actions will demonstrate our caring if we use caring actions. I think patients do recognize when you're fully invested in their care and that will go a long way rather than you just being there. If you're just showing up and let's get this done, it might not have the best results, but if you're fully investing, fully caring and wanting the best and making it client-centered, I think that's the best outcomes that will come about it. And they will recognize it and be appreciative that you're fully participating. I think it's good to note in regards to the patient's awareness, potentially, and how that can, awareness of their condition, that is, of how that can impact their um, recovery. Because that if a patient has like a cognitive impairment and their awareness is impacted, then they may have safety concerns. Well, we will have the safety concerns for their uh, uh, everyday life. I think that's very important to note, but it also will 
impact their motivation going into uh, their treatment sessions because if they're not really aware that they have the condition, they're going to be like, why am I here? What's the point of me coming here? So making them aware of their status and what goals you want to achieve or what goals we want to achieve, the client and the clinician, I think that is very important uh, for these patients that have the awareness deficit. 100%. I'm actually looking. What's that article called? That one is Awareness of Deficits in Stroke Rehabilitation. Yeah. I, I'm i so glad that you found this information and that you brought that up because I think that's one of the most difficult things for therapists to help address in a person when they are experiencing that. And then the other article that you provided that I thought was fascinating is the one on cognitive reserve. And I wonder what the connection is there, if there is a connection to cognitive reserve and being able to help increase awareness in in the deficit areas. I would say there's definitely a connection because with the cognitive impact in the brain that then thus affects the awareness, they will need that feedback, the visual feedback from the therapist. But going into the cognitive reserve, that is what will help benefit you the most going into your recovery process. That cognitive reserve could be the difference in your outcomes. As we're talking about the big factors, I think that might be one of the biggest ones potentially. Yeah, that was really insightful, this article. So maybe explain what cognitive reserve is. And I know that they're talking about general reserve, brain reserve, and cognitive reserve. Okay, that's a great uh, point to bring up. So we are going to define cognitive reserve. And I, I've seen this term before, and it's something that I never took a close look at until I did this research. So it's very interesting to note that cognitive reserve is an active process where better cognitive flexibility can moderate the manifestation of pathology or injury along with enhanced neuroplasticity. So there are two features of cognitive reserve, and these are known as neural reserve and compensation. So neural reserve utilizes, optimizes, or strengthens pre-existing and effective cognitive processing strategies to maximize your performance when you're neurons are compromised by any sort of neuropathology and injury and compensation is essentially recruiting alternative neural networks or pathways that are not normally used by healthy individuals to compensate for that neurologic disruption and the biggest question for me when i was learning about cognitive reserve is you know how is it developed or formed or can you how how can you build this cognitive reserve and i found that generally speaking everybody can build their cognitive reserve and has 
a cognitive reserve by engaging in the complex tasks of your everyday life throughout your entire lifespan. So this includes engaging in educational and occupational pursuits, doing any type of physical work, using your cognition on your, in your day-to-day -day life, um, participating in social activities, as well as leisure activities. So really, all of these things that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis throughout your life are building your reserve. And um, there are other factors related to cognitive reserve, such as like level of education or whether you're bilingual, that could probably attribute more so than other types of things. But essentially, it's pretty interesting to, to learn that your life experiences is really what's building your cognitive reserve. Yes, I think the life experiences are very impactful for sure. And everyone's is so different too. So it's obviously going to impact your outcomes differently. But obviously there's anomalies in every case as well. You can have so many years of education and still um, can't rely on that cognitive reserve to help back you up. So you still have to participate in practice, you know, makes progress. So can we continue this conversation with cognitive reserve from a clinical perspective? Because I was obviously preparing and reviewing all of your wonderful material. You guys have some really important things that you're noting in your clinical bottom line in this topic specifically. So I'm pitching that one back to you guys for additional from a provider, from a care partner perspective, what are some things that we could be doing, we should be doing, and we could be thinking very large scale here. We could definitely promote physical activity, including aerobic exercise and physical training, as this is shown to increase brain volume, preserve cognition in everyone potentially. It increases BDNF, that brain-derived neurotrophic factor. We could also advocate for public po policy to promote universal education and promote the uh, establishment and maintenance of physical, mental, and social enriched lifestyles in advanced age, which I think is very important because just looking at my grandparents, they don't participate in as many things as what they used to when they were younger. And I've seen with the lack of participation, whether it's socially, physically, or emotionally, like there could be some declines. So I think it's good to stay active, stay participating in as many things as you can, especially as you get older. Yes. And didn't that article mention the importance of socialization as people age? Yeah, it did. I find that with older adults, they use their age as sort of an excuse to say that I'm not gonna, you know, I'm too old to learn this or most of my life is done. I just want to take a step back. And I totally respect that, you know, like you've done so much in your life and now comes the time where you want to relax and take the back seat a little bit. But there are so many aspects where you can still work on keeping your mind sharp through your daily activities. And um, the biggest thing I think is 
connecting and socializing with others and also maintaining some sort of physical activity because that stimulates your mind and it there are so many positive outcomes to physical activity but being being involved in several aspects that challenge and stimulate your brain i think is key to combat that sort of cognitive decline we generally see in older adults one of my mantras whenever i have a friend that retires besides congratulating them on their retirement i always say now what's your next role what are you going to do to keep yourself busy and they think well i've retired my time's to rest and i'm like mm mm you have to have a new role. And then I start talking about socialization and the benefits of that to your cognitive abilities. And then they're like, oh, she's being all therapy again on me. But it's the truth. So really think about a provider's roles in that. Helping people transition when you're working with someone who has experienced a stroke or when you're working with care partners who their loved one has experienced a stroke, maintaining and engaging in new roles that they are capable and able to do is critical because again there's um, we need to make sure that we're that we're instilling hope and that people are moving on in their lives beyond what has occurred to them i think hopeful but realistic at the same time is very important especially me because i am a hopeful positive person i'm like yeah you can do all those things and it's like no i gotta step back think about okay these are their barriers per se and um, this is the state that they're at now it's like okay yes we can build potentially to that you can we can work on modification compensation like all those things to potentially get you there let's be hopeful and try but also be realistic yes and having some insight as a practitioner as to when to address that So Tracy, you speak often to planting seeds, and I think that as a person who worked so long in critical care and acute care, I think there's a lot of seed planting that goes on in those phases because people are dealing with the experience at hand. They're keeping them alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're they're not, they're not able or they're not, they're just not capable of thinking even to tomorrow sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And even even they may not be ready for a new role in mm-hmm. inpatient rehab at the subacute level. They may not be okay. ready at home care or even outpatient. It may be some years down the road before somebody starts to feel like, oh, maybe I could do something else. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I would like to encourage survivors to reach out to their healthcare professionals. Again, occupational therapists love helping people reintegrate into the community. We love helping people identify new roles. We can help with that if a person needs help. And this goes back to another comment that you frequently make, Tracy, about knowing the resources in the area, knowing your community resources and your community partners to help people connect with them so that they can investigate and see if there's something out there that that might be beneficial for them. Yeah, have that information available, even if you don't have someone in mind at the time, but really do some investigation in the area that where you're working, what is available. And if there's something not available, work from an advocacy level on establishing those services, those agencies, 
those needs, even from a from a volunteer perspective, that um, grassroots efforts are, go a long way. I think it's important to note the long-term post-stroke problems that can occur through the time. So in our research, we found a post-stroke checklist that was formulated and made up by 21 stroke experts that was uh, represented by nine countries, which I think is amazing. But they had at least one uh, occupational therapist to speak on our behalf and uh, really speak on the client's behalf uh, in regards to what is needed for sure. 11 final items on their post-stroke checklist as they found to be the top priorities or top problems identified by them and what they've seen by uh, their clients were secondary prevention, ADLs, mobility, pain, communication, mood, social participation, which we discussed, spasticity, consonance, cognition, and relationship with caregivers. These are still problems for clients down the road in their recovery. Yes. So are we supposed to, as clinicians, as healthcare providers, should we get a hold of this list? And well, I I would like this list. So I would say, yes, we should get a hold of this list and ask people those questions. The nice thing about this article is that it gives you an action to take based on their answer of yes or no. And sometimes as a provider, you need a little nudge to know what to do next, if you should do something next. And so, for example, with activities of daily living, I'll pick that one because of our occupational therapy focus. The question is, since your stroke or last assessment, are you finding it more difficult to take care of yourself? If they say no, you can observe progress. And if they say yes, you can dig deeper, ask some more questions about where they might be having those difficulties. And if they are related to occupational therapy, you could provide more OT services, do a formal evaluation, or you could refer them to the appropriate professional. And this checklist does not cover every possible stroke problem but rather targets those areas that have the greatest impact on the patient's quality of life and are treatable through evidence-based interventions, which I think is very important that we're not touching on something that, you know, we have no control of per se. So we're being realistic again. So just to backtrack Um, for a second, I I found it so interesting to find that 50% of stroke survivors report unmet needs, especially in the areas of incontinence, emotional problems, mobility, pain, and speaking problems. And so I think this is a great tool to have that conversation started on your unmet needs. And I think this also relates back to unawareness of other deficits. So maybe, you know, by asking these questions, you're bringing to light some issues that they never actually thought of compared to some of the more um, explicit issues that they may have that they are thinking of 
but I think this is just a good tool to cover all your bases and talk about the most important areas where we can provide services and address them or like Deb said to refer to the necessary practitioners to address these other concerns. And in the article, it's it says that this checklist is used in primary care settings um, and <laughs> by primary care providers, but it does not um, exclude us. We can definitely be using this checklist as uh, specialists and stroke practitioners and rehab. Um, and personally, I work in a primary care setting as a medical assistant. So I've been a part of that continuum of care and I've seen, you know, they might not use this checklist per se, but we have patients that have had strokes and I'm very, um, I ask them a lot of questions when they come in about their strokes and how many years it's been and do you still see deficits, you know, and I observe as I bring them back. So I know there's things that are still missed. So I think it is important to advocate that adver advocate this to be used more in primary care settings, but along with stroke rehab specialists as well to really hone in on it as well into their treatment sessions. And I can't let this go without saying the role of occupational therapy in primary care. So that's definitely an area for growth and a, and a true need. And this checklist definitely supports ways that we as occupational therapists could be affecting change at the primary care level and then making the appropriate referrals at that point. Because clearly there are, from a straight reimbursement perspective and how we see things under our medical model, there are clearly evidence-based practices that still would be covered post-acute land in an outpatient setting and in the primary care, depending on how it's set up. That's a, that's a conversation for a different podcast. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> I love that you brought up quality of life. And it's interesting how addressing these questions, just by simply asking these questions and discovering if a person is experiencing a challenge in any one of these areas. And then by taking a next step, you are you are being an advocate for them to improve their quality of life. And I think a lot of times quality of life is so difficult to define despite the questionnaires that are available that we, healthcare professionals tend to kind of push that aside. And really, if we just look at what we're doing to help a person that is helping to improve their quality of life, it's a very, I think it's a very simple way that we can be helpful. Non-medical drivers of care, things such as social determinants of health, things that we as occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants can affect change on that aren't necessarily identified as readily in the current provision of services. Mm -hmm. But we really want to think about the things such as that social participation, that which leads to quality of life, talks about straight participation. I mean, we can go back to our outcomes, well, health and well-being, 
things that we should be addressing in our beautiful, broad and deep scope of practice. So making sure that those areas are being addressed. Oftentimes, because of the nature of what's going on, those things sometimes take a back seat because at the acute level, they're, they're keeping them alive. I mean, and then as it moves away from there, those are the things in the rehab settings, they're worried about their abilities to take care of themselves. Because if you can manage toileting and you can feed yourself and you can do that, it's a little easier to get you home with some support. So I see why services are in one, they go in one sort of direction at each level, but we have to remember and then pick up that the torch per se, that there are many things from, from a quality of life perspective for a broad definition that we as occupational therapy practitioners can be and should be addressing. Yeah, and if, if we're thinking about quality of life in terms of an assessment, I don't necessarily think that we need to use a quality of life tool. Perhaps someone at the primary care level would want to. I mean, I think this is an excellent opportunity for the primary care setting, but perhaps using the COPM and and getting that information, that could lead to discussions on quality of life. We definitely want to better the uh, our patients and clients. So I think that would be a great first step and well, a main step in our uh, questioning for sure to address the quality of life at hand. Because let's be honest, it will drill down to reduce hospital readmissions. It will affect everything. Mm -hmm. For both, I feel mm -hmm. like the client themselves and even the, the care partners and how it affects them as well, because it's a whole new role, as we discussed already. And, you know, there may be some burden felt with it. And we want to take that caregiver burden away or give them strategies to manage it and better their quality of life as well. From a universal design for learning perspective, I want everyone on the podcast to know that everyone is shaking their heads. And when Tori's speaking, she's putting her hands together back and forth indicating the more um, large issue at hand here. So I just wanted everyone to know that because I think on the podcast, that's one thing that we miss just from listening to a lot more podcasts now. I appreciate the descriptions of the engagement and the interaction of the speakers because really this is a conversation. And as we know as clinicians, so much more is told in the nonverbals than in the verbals. So I just wanted to take that moment to uh, imagine the conversation that we are having as if we were sitting around drinking our tea together as opposed to separate in little screens as we are right now. <laughs> yeah, so many times in my head I'm thinking, yes, 100%, totally agree. Right on. <laughs> you got you hit that one on the nail. So good. Yes, and when you mentioned the rehospitalization piece, it I was just a moment ago thinking about that article that came out several years ago where occupational therapy is linked with fewer readmissions. The Rogers that, et al. study. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that one particularly focused on cardiac people, mm -hmm. people who experienced a cardiac event, but their findings were related to what we do as OT practitioners. And that is looking at the discharge 
setting, looking at the environmental factors, looking at the whole person. And that applies to all of this. Mm -hmm. And the individual's ability to manage their own health when they leave the hospital, which that health management is a key factor in everything that we do at every level when we're thinking about a successful discharge. And a successful discharge is a discharge where they remained where they're planning on being. And in my opinion, the best place and the most financially sound is in their home. And that's not just my opinion. There are studies that, for that. Yeah, and supporting the care partner too because their quality of life matters as well. And I just want to make a statement of maybe a little nudge for people who are treating in subacute and inpatient rehab settings where they sometimes struggle to find interventions. And rather than doing something just to fill time, perhaps calling in the care partner and doing a joint session with them on some training and in that, in the training, you can have these meaningful conversations where, where you find out what their fears are and help address those fears and concerns so that these people can be more successful at home. Mm -hmm. And again, place those seeds, let them know. You may not think this is necessary now, but I want you to know that these services are available. This is how you could seek out respite support if you feel you need it in the future. And again, making appropriate referrals to providers. And then again, knowing the area that you work in. Yeah, that was actually one of the facilitators from the perspective of a healthcare provider for the facilitators for a person with stroke who is recovering and connecting and providing these post-discharge services, like Tracy mentioned, respite care, um, the services we provide within rehabilitation, including OT, as well as PT and SLP, those things and follow-up care and care coordination. I feel as though, I mean, I clinically speaking, I, I don't have the knowledge of what happens in the real world, but I think that this is where most people fall off the is when they go home and they don't know about these resources and so I think like Tracy said planting these seeds are important just letting them know that when when you come across a situation if you do there are resources and support available and um, this way you know that would accelerate and help somebody's recovery and stroke because of just knowing about these resources post-discharge. So I think it's important to just have these conversations and explain that even though you're going home, you still should know that there are supports available for you. I think it's also important to note it having those sit-down conversations with the client and care partner, it will I had one of these conversations during my field work and with supplying resources and just kind of going over where they're currently at in their recovery, it allowed the caregiver to feel better because they thought that their recovery was in their hands, basically. 
and our discussion and saying like, there's these resources to help you guys. We're also here to help you, you know, and laying everything out there. It allowed them to feel at ease and feel like not everything's on their shoulders and that they do have help for them as well. So I think that's really important to note. Yes. And not to overwhelm them with this information, but Mm -hmm. help them know that they have these resources here just when they're ready to revisit that information. I do think that's one of the benefits of having a stroke support group associated with your facility so that you can maintain contact and you keep that relationship going with the survivors and their family members, their loved ones. Well, I'm thinking it's time to wrap this up as much as I hate to end this conversation because this is, this was I know, really, me too. really it's so good. good. <laughs> it's so much. I feel like it was full of nuggets of really, really, really good stuff. That's well, speaking, so... speaking of nuggets, Doro, what's your number one takeaway from this? Oh, there's not a number one. It's just, it was all it was so good I mean there's so many points um I feel like just as a clinician you know being aware of all the different factors that can influence the recovery and promoting you know educating and promoting and advocating for the client and there's just so much I was gonna jump onto that Doro and speak to the two all the variations that come into almost in it, it's almost like a stew that you just don't know how your individual that you're working with is how your trajectory with them is going to be. You have some really good ideas because of what we talked about, but you just don't know because there's so many different ingredients that build into someone's rehab process and their experience. So yeah, and this was very helpful and, again, invigorating. I always like to, uh, as I my students always know, I call them my occupational warriors at the Aww. end of of a course that I teach. So I, I just this is uh, the next phase, and it's and it's an actual it's a pleasure and a delight to be involved with with you when you're so close to being done. Yeah, it's definitely. been a pleasure. Oh. And we're all clapping for yes. them. <laughs> Oh, good. Thank you, Deb. Universal Design for Learning. I picked it up quickly and only took two days. <laughs> Takeaways from Dory and Minakshi? Um, I think that the biggest takeaway is when somebody asks you, how long is it going to take for me to recover? And they want these answers, which I'm sure everybody wants these answers and you know you can and you wish you can provide these things and it's very difficult to answer this question of how long will it take to recover. I think this conversation will help clinicians, you know, discuss all the several factors that go into it and that stroke recovery is different from person to person, you know, even the people with the same injury clinically speaking can have different outcomes. And I think there's just so many, like you said, ingredients and so many things in this whole picture. So hopefully this conversation helps to enlighten others on why it's difficult to answer that question. 
Excellent. Yeah, I would agree that that question is very difficult. So I believe that this information will definitely help for sure. For me, it definitely made those connections from my field work to, you know, all this research that was done and made me realize like, oh, that would make sense, you know, as to why their recovery might have been a little bit different and whatnot. But I think also it's important, you know, for me at least to also have that in mind for the the care partners and to have those re, uh, resources and ready and available all throughout their continuum of care for sure. Wonderful. Thank you all this amazing conversation. Dora, I'm glad you could be here today. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons, at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.